Welcome to a special edition of the Chewy On Your Boot podcast as we bring you our 50th episode. Riley and I have really enjoyed our podcasting journey so far and honestly can't thank all of our guests, listeners and everyone else enough for the support. To celebrate this milestone, we've got our good friend Lockie Wombat Patterson becoming the first returning guest and we explore some past episodes that he played a big role in helping to make happen. The help Wombat has given us over the past year and a bit has been immense and to be able to get him back on the show is a small way for us to thank him. We also bring back the first ever guest of the podcast, the one and only James Jimmy Fear for a short chat. He may not be the biggest guest we've had but he certainly holds a special place in Chewy on your boot history and it was a pleasure to be able to get him back on and speak to him again. We had a lot of fun making this episode and we can't wait to see what the future holds for the show. We hope you enjoy this blast from the past. Thanks for listening. Just before we do get into it, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our good friends at Kremlin Clothing for their ongoing support of us. Make sure you go check them out on Instagram, at Kremlin, or use the link in our bio. Get on their website and get yourself some new clothes. Use the code BENM10 for a 10% discount. So make sure you go and do that, and let's get into it. Lockie, Wombi, welcome back to the Chew On Your Boot podcast. It's been just over a year think, since we had you on last, I think. Um, what have you been up to and how have you been keeping yourself busy? Well, firstly, Benny and Riley, it's a, it's a huge honour to be back. I think I just had a look through the list of uh, guests before and I'm pretty comfortable in saying I'm the first one to be on twice. Yep. So <laughs> given that I've, I'm on twice and Heater. Heath Smith still hasn't been on once. That is an enormous, an enormous privilege. It's something I'm very proud of, uh, and great to be back on a show that's obviously um, that's really grown leaves, I suppose, over the last couple of years. And it's a, it's a great um, it's a great feather in your cap, you boys, for the way you've been able to do it. And uh, I see your numbers continue to grow. And I, I I did notice that you've now got a sponsor on board, Kremlin Clothing, which is very exciting for you blokes. You really are moving up in the world. So, um, uh, look, in all seriousness, it's it's really nice to be back on. What have I been up to? Uh, look, uh, lockdown hasn't changed my life too much. I'm fortunate enough to still be able to go to work. Um, and I've got a lovely wife at home who's, um, I was going to say she's happy to be remote schooling the children i don't think that's quite the case but um <laughs> but she's doing wonderful she's doing a wonderful job of it so it's uh yeah that's about it boys and, and and obviously trying to get ready for another cricket season which hopefully will kick off and uh yeah. we wait with bated breath to see when we do start no it's very good and you've been a very big part of our journey so um it's the least we can do getting you back on here and having another chat to you and uh, look, uh, look, Benny, I think, t- to be fair, uh, I've only helped you connect with a few people and you boys have done the rest of the work. So I think I've been a very small part of the journey, really. You've done a great job of speaking to the people I've been, help you to, I've been able to help you touch base with. So all the privilege and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the kudos should certainly go to you guys. Uh, very oh, kind. And the Blues, you, we've got you at a good time because they're flying. <laughs> how, was the, uh, how was the ticker last weekend? 
Yeah, last weekend was a bit exciting for everyone, I reckon. Um, it was one of those games where even those that don't necessarily support Carlton, I think, were very excited by what they saw. And then to see them come out um, against uh, Gold Coast this week and win a game that they should have won, but probably in the past they would have dropped, was a was a great thing to watch. And um, I've, I think I've convinced two of my three daughters now to buy Carlton, so it's a good time for them to be winning a few games. That's very good. And so we'll get right into the thick of things now. Um, Cam White, good mate of yours. He's just announced his retirement today or yesterday. Um, it's well known to us that you had a very good, you've got a very good friendship with him. Can you take us into how that sort of came about? Yeah, look, it started a long time ago, um, back in uh, when, when Cam was a part of the Australian A setup and I was just starting off in my career with Cricket Australia and, I suppose we just found a um, we found a connection through the fact that we were both from the country. Uh, we both had a an enjoyment of fishing, um, and I think over over time we grew to respect each other through um, through the fact that we were able to take the piss out of each other. Really, was was about the was probably the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, we spent a lot of time together uh, in a working capacity. Cam's obviously been someone who's been a leader of. Um, an Australian team in the past and had a stint there as captain of the, of the 2020 team. Um, but he's just been someone I've always been able to rely on. Um, someone I count as a, as a close friend and someone who certainly helped me through uh, some difficult periods of my working career. He was always um, someone a little bit younger than me, but someone who'd had a lot of, you know, I think he was thrown the Victorian captaincy when he was 19 or 20. So he'd had some, wonderful leadership experience um, and was a man of the world, I suppose. So he was a great person to be able to call on and someone I do still speak to regularly. And yeah, like you say, he's announced his retirement from cricket today. And I have texted him this morning and he got straight back to me saying he's looking forward to moving into that coaching world and hopefully finding a bit more time to come down to the Southwest and go fishing. So um, he's a great man there. And um, I think he will be someone who will add a lot to our cricket through his coaching from this point. Yeah. And you mentioned his leadership. What was it about him to you that made him such a great leader? Yeah, he was just no nonsense, mate. And uh, he was all about leading by example. So um, one of the things in my role as a media manager, I had to try and convince him that he should be trying to spin something one way or the other. And I suppose one of the reasons I respected him is because he refused to do that. He always spoke uh, the honest truth about things. He was straight down the line. Um, in the nicest possible way, there was absolutely no bullshit with there. So he was um, he was someone that was yeah, like I say, uh, didn't want to spin the truth and told people how it was, and he did things by example. He was one of the hardest trainers that you'd ever see, um, uh, and he certainly made the most of the talent that he had across a you know an extremely illustrious career at both international, but certainly at domestic level where he's. Yeah, you know, he'd be up there in the top dozen players of all time in uh, in domestic cricket in Australia. It's very good, and we really enjoyed our episode interviewing him. And the listeners will now hear a bit of a snippet of that. Yeah. 
We now move on to Mike Hussey, Wombi. It's safe to say, especially being early on, this is one of Benny, Benny and I's favourite episodes. It's a very tough question, but where do you rank him in terms of Aussie batsmen of the last 20 years? <laughs> um, I think the thing with Mike that's, uh, that makes it so hard to judge is the fact that he obviously didn't start playing international cricket until so late in his um, I suppose in his cricketing life. So uh, there aren't many players that are able to come into the Australian side at the age that he did and have the impact that he did for such a long time. Um, he he would, um, I think he will rank amongst the truly great players for Australia when you look at his record. But it's not just his batting that made Mike obviously such a wonderful individual. It was the contribution he was able to give to the team. Um, you know, certainly with the bat as an extremely important player, but a wonderful fielder and one of the best teammates that many of those players will ever have. And, and certainly for me in a working capacity, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And his debut, which we'll hear from his perspective very soon. Do you remember much of that? He tells a very good story about he had tears in his eyes and all the things that were going through his head when he was facing his first bowl. What's your perspective on Mike's debut? Yeah, look, I think everybody that was involved at that time there remembers exactly how Mike was going. He was a person that um, certainly wore his heart on his sleeve through his whole career um, and his debut was no different. Um, I think what made Mike so special was his ability post that game to pretty much immediately have such a big impact on the Australian team and, and like I just mentioned, not only with the bat but certainly with his contribution to the team. I don't think you'll find too many players, to be honest, that make their debuts in international cricket, no matter who it be against, that aren't suffering from uh, some anxiety or some nerves of some sort. I think what makes the special ones special is their ability to move on from there really quickly and um, use, obviously, that exceptional skill level that they've got to make a massive contribution to their team. Definitely. And you'll now hear Mike's debut story now. As far as my first test, yeah, it was uh, it was a, an emotional roller coaster. Really, yeah. uh, obviously, really excited to get. Uh, well, I was actually on standby for Justin Langer initially, oh, okay. but just 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 to be there was uh, pretty exciting. And I remember watching Justin Langer like a hawk at training. He, he was suffering from a rib injury. He wasn't sure if they were, if he was going to play or not. And um, we had training, and uh, he, he came up to me after training and said, "Mate, I'm out." You're in, um, and good luck. So, you know, that that was a a real sort of uh, like, oh, wow moment. I'm actually going to play a test. And and then on the morning, I felt pretty good. I got my cap from uh, Bill Brown, who was the oldest living Australian test player at the time, and and he said a few uh, nice words. And and then it all started to change when Ricky Ponning went out to uh, do the toss. Uh, He won the toss, and within about sort of half an hour, I was going to be opening the batting with Matthew Hayden in, in a test match. And that's when the nerves and the butterflies really kicked in. Yeah. And uh, we actually sang the national anthem as a team. 
team and, and I think about halfway through that I lost all feeling in my legs. Yeah. Um, raced off, got my pads on and, and uh, went to the toilet for about the 35th time with nerves <laughs> and Warnie's in the toilets there with his little playboy underpants on just smoking <laughs> a cigarette. And just, he just sort of said, Huss, good luck. You know, you, you don't have to prove anything to us. Just, just go out there and play your way and, yeah. and that was really nice but it sort of didn't help me as I, as I was walking out the bat, you know, with no feeling in my legs. And yeah. I, I remember facing up, you know, to my first ball and Fidel Edwards was the West Indian opening bowler. And, and um, it's amazing how your mind just fails you at the wrong time. You, yeah. you know, you, you, you start as you run up and, and my mind starts wandering off to playing in the backyard with my brother. And, and then um, my cricket head would come back on and say, for goodness sake, concentrate. You're about to face <laughs> your first ball. And then, and then my mind started wandering off again, you know, think, thinking about playing first-class cricket and getting dropped from the WA team and then fighting my way back, and here I was. And then my cricket head again would say, for goodness sake, you know, concentrate. And, and the last thing, just as he was about to bowl, the last thing um, that was going through my mind, I, I actually started to well up. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought, you can't be seen crying uh, in your first ball of test cricket. So, uh, yeah, I didn't handle the emotions well at all uh, in my first test, I must admit. It uh, didn't last very long, only got one run. Uh, but it was a great experience and, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I loved it. And moving on to his brother Dave, another previous guest on the show. Um, probably didn't reach the same heights as Mike, but he was still a very good cricketer. And I suppose what was your opinion on how, how good he was? Yeah, Dave was a completely different person to Mike and certainly a different cricketer. Um, he was uh, an extremely talented player, again, at domestic level, who probably, uh, to a degree, was unlucky to be around at a time when the Australian team was quite strong. Uh, and by the time uh, the Australian team had sort of lost some of those senior players, he was coming, I suppose, towards the end of his first-class career, which I know is something that's, you know, that's always been really disappointing for Dave. But what he did was make the absolute most of his opportunities that he did get at one day level and certainly at 2020 level. He was one of the, um, you know, the first people to make a really big splash in the IPL as well, which is something that he holds really true to his heart. Um, he's a bit of a prankster, Dave. Uh, he was, again, he was the life of the team to a degree. I suppose the main difference you find between Mike and Dave, Mike was happy to keep everyone happy and Dave was... Um, probably not quite as worried about that as Mike was, I suppose, to a degree. He, um, he had the ability to rub people up the wrong way because he was so motivated to do well in that team and so motivated to make the most of that opportunity that he got. And luckily for me, I had a great relationship with Dave as well. Um, and again, he was one of those people that while he mightn't have been in the team for a, a huge period of time, he had a, a great level of experience uh, in the domestic caper and he was someone that I was able to rely on for certainly for nice honest feedback which uh, is something that I think is really important no matter what industry you're involved in. And just quietly did you have a favourite between Mike and Dave? <laughs> it's like asking me which of my three daughters is my favourite so <laughs> I, I, I think they were um, I loved both of them but I love them for different reasons so um, Mike was salt of the earth um, would do anything for anyone, was Mr. Nice Guy. All of the things you read about Mike in the papers and you hear about him and the way that he spoke on, on the episode that I'm sure you'll play a little bit of soon uh, were absolutely true. Mike, he's just a gentleman and he was one of those people um, 
every member of your family loved him because he was nice to everyone. He also, um, one of the things that he would say regularly to me was that nice things happen to nice people. And uh, I think that was something that he lived. And I think I mentioned that to you before he spoke to you. Um, and it was it's something that I hold really dear to my heart now. I, and I think there's absolutely no doubt about it that um, nice things do happen to nice people. And, and you know, I think we should always be um, looking to pay it forward, I suppose, in the in the in the theme of lockdown but paying it forward is something that's really important and and that can be anything from you know as we're seeing at the moment a lot of people are buying coffees for people but it's also to a degree just being nice to people and swings and roundabouts it always comes back to help you out and just on dave i think you told us that his wife has a crush on you or something uh can you tell us a bit about that one <laughs> well she's only human for starters benny so um <laughs> no, no, it was certainly a running joke between Dave and I from day one. And he, on the flip side, he was nice enough. Well, he was probably mature enough more to say, not to mention it, but he often says exactly the same thing about my wife and, and, and he. So um, he was down here recently, actually, and uh, with his wife and his family just before the latest lockdown. And, and we caught up for dinner in Hall's Gap. And uh, I, I actually, I certainly made the most of sitting next to Christy for the evening and, uh, and, and certainly wooing her with all my charm and Dave sat there loving it. And I said, well, you know, we've been talking about this for years, so I might as well make the most of it. And uh, no, no, they're a lovely couple. They've got two wonderful children and um, yeah, Christy and I have a, um, a great relationship, but uh, certainly nothing uh, untoward going on there as much as I like to tell Dave there is. <laughs> And just on to more serious things now, I suppose. Um, we'll hear him very shortly speak about his ODI and T20 debuts. What are your memories of those games? Yeah, I heard him talking about them um, on the episode, obviously, and it brought back some great memories. It was a wonderful achievement for Dave to get into both of those teams, and mainly because he was a player that had excelled at domestic level for so long. And I, I suppose my overriding memory of both of those events was just how proud he was. Um, unlike Mike, Dave wasn't really someone that showed their emotions. Um, and he certainly wasn't someone that you could talk to about them much like you could with Mike. But it was, um, for me, uh, and the fact that I did have a good relationship, I, you know, I just felt so happy for him at the time that he was able to come in. And again, um, a little bit like Mike, I was able to have an impact really quickly. Um, his impact on that Australian team in, in ODI in 2020 from, you know, from all facets of the game, batting where he was an absolute dynamite, um, fielding where he was, you know, extremely serviceable. But then I think his bowling in, uh, you know, in those limited overs matches was something that's really, um, you know, that's really forgotten. And certainly his ability to bowl an over in about one minute flat was something that helped Australian teams, not just, keep the opposition batsmen on track, but certainly help them uh, with any overrate issues they might have had. So, yeah, I, I think to simply answer your question um, was just, my memory was just on being proud of uh, a bloke that I knew had worked really, really hard to get there and uh, was extremely pleased with what he'd been able to achieve. Yeah. And now we'll hear a little bit from our chat with Dave. Uh, well, T20 debut was uh, phenomenal. I had a ball. Um, we played against India at the MCG. Um, 
I just started seeing my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, and um, I think I became like a, a good solid four out of ten to a, maybe a six or seven out of ten <laughs> for Australia. So, um, but that that night, just getting presented my cap by Ricky Ponting was yeah, it was just it was an amazing feeling. I got a couple of wickets, which is great, um, and we won the game. So that, that was that was a great feeling, uh, and then. Making my debut in the West Indies, once again, getting my cap presented by Ricky Ponting. Um, our good friend in Lockie Patterson, he was there uh, also. And yeah, it was just one of those moments where you, you never actually forget. Move on to Greg Chappell now, Wombie. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you would have met him, he probably would have finished his career up and would have been moved into more of the administrative side of things. So what was that like? Obviously, he had a very illustrious and established career what was it like meeting him and then working alongside him yeah so when i first met gc um he'd certainly finished playing with no doubt about that <laughs> he was um he was fulfilling a role as a selector and i suppose one of the great things about um my work at that time was the selectors would obviously come on tour with you so they'd basically be one selector at a time that would come away on tour or be with the team um from a domestic perspective at all time. And we had obviously some great individuals. So, you know, GC was one of those, um, but some others, you know, that spring to mind that were fantastic. I spent a lot of time with David Boone when he was in his role as selector. Obviously, Murph Hughes, another person you've spoken to. Um, Andrew Hildich, who was much maligned at the end of his selectorship career, I suppose, but was one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. Um, uh, you know, um, Jamie Cox from Tasmania was another selector that spent a lot of time with us and, uh, you know, some wonderful people that we got to spend, you know, serious amounts of time with, whether it be in Australia or overseas. Um, speaking of GC, though, uh, I, I suppose I only vividly remembered him playing, obviously. Um, but what I did know is that he was a legend of the game. Uh, I knew from speaking to my dad and from speaking to people of his vintage that he was one of those people that was so widely respected um, as an amazing player um, and a person that changed Australian cricket. So, um, you know, I, I watched with interest a couple of weeks ago on Channel 9. They had a special on his brother, Ian, um, and it was incredible uh, to watch the influence that the Chapel family had on Australian cricket. So to be working really closely with Greg, I suppose, from one perspective, I was a little bit nervous when I first met him. Um, but the overriding memory of Greg um, was the fact that he, he was able to talk to you um, and to work with you like you were just any other person on the street and, uh, and, and, you know, an amazing individual, such a great network, but such great stories. Um, I think one of the best abilities I've ever seen to be able to hold court in a room, you know, being able to regardless with stories of times gone by, um, you know, some, some amazing things he's been involved with, not just his own playing career, but being the coach of India, um, you know, being a selector, his time as the head of the National Centre of Excellence here in Australia, just a person that had a story for everything and was always so willing to share them. So, um, yeah, no, it was truly wonderful time with GC. And, um, you know, uh, one thing that I... Um, that I look back on now extremely fondly, um, just a wonderful human being. And obviously the infamous underarm incident, we spoke to him about it in length, but 
It's something that's become, I suppose, synonymous with Australian and New Zealand cricket. So what's your perspective on, I suppose, the effect that it had on our on Cricket Australia? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, to be honest, in all the time I spent with Greg, um, it was something I never asked him about because I didn't think he wanted to talk about it. So, so you boys have done really well to bring it up with him in an hour-long chat, I reckon. That's fantastic. Um, I think the influence that it had on Australian cricket I can only go on um, what Greg spoke about uh, both in your podcast, but then I saw him talk about it again in that show I was talking about before on Channel 9. Um, and he just spoke about the fact that it was it was just the end of, of a period where um, he was feeling extremely stressed. He was feeling as if he wasn't being supported by, um, you know, the Australian cricket board at the time. Uh, and it was, it, it was just a release for him. Um, in terms of what effect it's had long term, I think it's probably only had a positive effect long term. Obviously, there was a lot of people upset about it at the time, um, but long term, it's obviously had an impact on the way the players are treated, the way the players and the players' association are able to influence scheduling, uh, but but certainly the way that they're rewarded for playing. Um, so I think Greg, um, although he wouldn't admit it now is considered as a trailblazer and someone that was able to, you know, through an act that he readily admits that he wouldn't do again if he had his time over. Um, you know, I think you only have to look at the positives that have come out of it um, rather than focus on the negatives. And, and even to a degree, I think there's some New Zealand cricketers out there that still say it was a great thing because it put so much emphasis on uh put so much emphasis back onto New Zealand cricket and meant that every time New Zealand played Australia, they had huge crowds, which obviously means a lot of revenue for the cricket board over there. So I focus on the positives that come out of it rather than the negatives. Absolutely. And you'll hear it from Greg's perspective now. Um, I'll try and keep it a short story because it really, it, it had very little to do with what was going on on the day. It was a build up from, a lot of this off the field stuff that had been going on before World Series cricket. Then we went through the revolution of World Series cricket to, you know, stand up to the the cricket board and say, listen, you know, we, you know, we're partners in this game with you guys. You know, we uh, we deserve a bit more respect. Um, they weren't giving us a lot of respect, let alone any money. World Series cricket certainly improved the money, but it finished probably a year too early. Um, you know, I think the game was. Um, you know, on its knees, but the board hadn't sort of been brought to its knee. You know, the, the traditional game uh, was on its knees, but it, the board hadn't really been brought to its knees. When we came back after World Series cricket, all of the problems that we had before World Series cricket, except the pay, were still there and was exacerbated by the fact that we now had a lot more cricket to play because one day cricket became a big part of the summer. We had two touring teams instead of one. So it meant that, um, well, in the, the first year or two after World Series cricket, we were actually playing alternate test matches. I can remember one year we played um, the West Indies in the first test match and then we played England in the second test. And Bruce Laird had had his hand broken by the West Indies and couldn't play against England. So England got the benefit of what the West Indies had done in that sense. And in amongst it all, we played one-day cricket. So we were playing a few test matches, then we'd play a snatch of one-day games and then back to test cricket. It was all over the place. 
And at the same time, the Melbourne Cricket Ground was a mess. The, uh, the centre wicket at the Melbourne Cricket Ground was just a disgrace. The quality of the, the pitches that were being um, offered up there at the MCG weren't as good as Clem Jones' pitch at the Gabba. So, um, that, and that's saying something because uh, you would have had to try hard to produce something worse than Clem was producing. But they were doing it on a regular basis at the MCG and we were playing twice as many games at the MCG as anybody else was. And pretty much for about 18 months, I had been... Uh, you know, the, the other aspect of it is, you know, we didn't have media managers. We didn't have... You know, we had a team manager who was more about logistics. You know, anything to do with the team, the media came to the captain, the administration came to the captain. So the workload as captain after World Series cricket was... I don't know, five times, ten times greater than it was before World Series cricket. And, you know, I, I didn't realise just how much of an impact uh, this was having uh, having on me. Um, we had a really tight uh, series um, with India and New Zealand that uh, that summer. And we were coming down to the finals of, uh, of the one-day competition, after which we had a, the final test match against India at the MCG. And, you know, the only place that India could be competitive with us in Australia at that stage was in at the MCG because it was so low and slow and uh, more like an Indian wicket than an Australian wicket. Senior players had had a really long, you know, all of us had a long, long summer. Um, we had a few little injury niggles for, with key players. So there was a whole lot of stuff that was going on in the, in the background. And then we had this game that was going down to the wire. Um, and when it uh, came to the, the, the last over, um, Trevor, my younger brother, was bowling. And we, um, we needed, I don't know, two or three wickets. He took a couple of wickets and then Brian McKechnie came to the crease. I'd never seen Brian bat before because he'd come over as an injury replacement. But I imagine batting number 11 for New Zealand probably wasn't that good. Uh, but... Um, this was more about a statement from my point of view. I knew New Zealand couldn't win. In fact, even if they hit a six, they couldn't win the game. They could only tie the game. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't going to have a huge impact on, on the outcomes of that game or the, the, the final series because New Zealand had already qualified for the, um, the final series. Well, that was the final series. So um, I can remember I was feeling it... Um, deep mid on because that was sort of a, a danger zone and you know I was one of the better outfielders in the in the team so I put myself where I felt that I was going to be most useful and I remember looking up as Brian McKechnie walked in uh, to bat and I thought you know what I've just about had a gut full of this so I walked up to Trevor and I said mate how are you bowling your underarms and his eyes rolled back in his head and he said, I don't know. And I said, mate, you're just about to find out because that's what you'll be doing. Um, didn't leave any room for discussion. Um, walked over to the, um, the umpire at the bowler's end and um, told him that Trevor would be delivering the last ball underarm and he's, his eyes rolled back in his head. He walked over to the square leg umpire and uh, informed him that uh, Trevor would be bowling the last ball underarm and I'm reliably told that Donny Weezer's eyes rolled back in his head as well. So 
nobody was all that excited about it. Um, and to be quite honest, I couldn't have cared less at that point. Once I'd instructed Trevor, I walked back to, to deep mid on and I was just waiting for the game to finish so I could get off the ground. Trevor bowled an absolute jaffer. It's not that easy to bowl underarm if you haven't practiced it. Um, and he could have made me look a real goose if he'd bowled a wide um, because then I would have been in serious trouble because they would have been able to win the game then. And um, I, I'm sure I would have let him bowl one properly after that. But he bowled a jaffer. Brian McKechnie blocked it, threw his bat away, and we all headed to the dressing room. I started to jog off from, from mid on. I was on the dressing room side of the ground and I had about 100 metres to the players' race and I started to jog towards the, the race. In those days, at the end of the game, kids would jump the fence and run out on the ground and everyone did that. They all started to run out on the ground, which was not unusual. I remember this young girl, probably 10 or 11, sort of come out. I saw her jump over the fence and run out and I thought she was going with everyone else out into the middle of the ground, which is what they did. And so I slowed down to let her go in front of me. And as she went across, she turned around. I had long sleeve shirt on and she just tugged on my sleeve. And uh, I looked down and she said, you cheated. And I thought, um, that, you know, I, I realised then that um, maybe I'd underestimated the response. So I got to the dressing room and uh, the, uh, the Australian players were very quiet. No one said a word. So... Uh, I went and had a shower so they could talk amongst themselves. And I realised while I was under the shower, we were meant to be flying to Sydney the next day because we had a, that was on the Sunday. We had a game on Tuesday in Sydney. Um, I realised that Melbourne probably wasn't the place for me to wake up on Monday morning. So I went to our team manager and said, John, uh, the, the Sydney-based boy, Sydney boys were going to be flying back to Sydney that night, uh, including my younger brother. So I said, John, if there's any chance, I'd like to get on that flight so I can be up in Sydney tomorrow and not have to run the uh, gauntlet at the Melbourne airport. So uh, they got me out of town and all hell bloke loose. Um, but I, uh, I tucked myself away in my room at the uh, hotel in, in Sydney and uh, kept the head down. The phone was ringing, messages were being shoved under the door. Um, I had to answer uh, one of the calls because it was from the cricket board. So we. Uh, had to organise an, an apology, which I was, was happy to do. But it certainly uh, unleashed some um, almighty uh, comment from uh, the media and everyone else. But funnily enough, uh, the New Zealand players were terrific. Jeff Howarth, who was the captain, was um, incredibly, uh, incredibly good. And, yeah, the, just talking to the New Zealand player, funnily enough, um, this past uh, summer we had a reunion in, in Melbourne with the, um, the New Zealand boys from that, uh, that particular series and it wasn't the first time it had been said but um, Jeff Howarth said to a, uh, an audience there at, at that particular day that it was the best thing that ever happened to New Zealand cricket. He said, you know, we'd, we'd struggled to get crowds to support us because rugby's the big game in, in New Zealand and cricket's a secondary sport. He said, we couldn't get a crowd to uh, to support us, but Greg sorted that out in one fell swoop, and we we toured New Zealand the next year, and we had sellout crowds everywhere we went. Now on to another one of our favourite episodes, Peter Siddle. Um, his hat trick, which we'll hear about, must have been pretty cool to witness from your end. 
Yeah, it was very cool to witness because it had been a pretty slow day up until then. Um, one of the biggest um, one of the biggest issues I had at work was when we'd have a really slow day of test cricket and there hadn't been many wickets or no one would, or you know, or no one had really contributed greatly with the bat was trying to find a uh, immediate performer for the end of the day. So the first thing I remember about Sid's being on two wickets from two balls was that I'd found myself someone to do the media at the end of the day. In particular, if he got a third wicket and got a hat trick, it wouldn't be hard to convince him to do it. So I remember sitting in the box there with all the support staff um, and the roar that came from in there, but also from the crowd at the end of the day was, it was just unbelievable. So, um, and you know, particularly on his birthday as well, uh, it was just a great day all around um, and, and something that I will honestly never forget. Um, you know, something like that, happening to a wonderful person um, was, you know, it was just, it was just reward. And like I say, it was a nice way to finish off what had been a pretty slow day of test cricket before that. And obviously that was part of an Ashes series. How special was it, I suppose, for you to be part of multiple Ashes series, given there's so much yeah. hype and all of that around it? Yeah, really good question, Benny. Um, it, it was extremely special. Um, and, um, you know, while I wasn't a player and I was far away from that, it was it was amazing. So the build-up to an Ashes series in Australia or in England from a media perspective was unlike, um, well, it was unlike any other series bar an Indian series, sorry. So, but it was, it, particularly when it was in Australia, the, uh, you know, the excitement that you would see building in, in, in all of the cities around Australia before the series begun was just incredible. Um, and, you know, people, you know, there's a lot of people around that will save up money or, or not go to the cricket for three years in Australia just so they can go to an Ashes series. Um, it, it's, it's, so, it's so highly regarded against the old foe. Um, and, you know, I, I know full well that us as a group of support staff would be just as excited as the players about it because it was a huge thing. And particularly if you could be successful in those Ashes series, um, you know, it was, it was amazing to be a part of. And uh, yeah, it, um, you know, un unlike, you know, unlike anything else, obviously um, lots of excitement and lots of numbers of media and spectators around an Indian series, but the Ashes had something special. There's no doubt about it. And probably some of your busiest times in your role. Yeah, absolutely, Benny. It was, um, so, so we used to have an open media day before an Ashes series, which was pretty much the only series we'd do that before, and we'd roll out all of the Ashes squad. that um, was generally in Brisbane before the first test, and you'd pretty much have them uh, all lined out along the, uh, along the length of Allen Border Field, and the media would come and they'd walk up the line and speak to every player individually for as long as they wanted. So that pretty much went for half a day. And it was the only time we did that, but it was the only way that we could cope with the amount of requests that we would get from both Australian and international media throughout the series. So if we gave them that opportunity at the start, it meant we had a better ability, I suppose, to be able to manage it um, uh, while the cricket was actually being played. But um, yeah, just unbelievable interest in that series from all over the world. And, um, you know, as I've said, extremely proud to be a part of it. And Sid spoke of his test debut in India where he picked up Tendulkar as his first wicket. How well did you know him at that point and were you able to share, I suppose, that special time in his career with him? Yeah, so I wasn't actually there for that game. Um, uh, I was back in Australia at that point. Um, 
So I wasn't there for his debut, but I know there was a, a huge build-up to it. And I know um, in speaking to Ricky, and I heard Sids actually talk about it himself, it was Ricky that was pushing really hard for him to play. And it was, it was certainly around his ability um, to intimidate. And as a youngster, having... Um, you know, one of the greatest Australian batsmen and captains of all time in Ricky Ponting, be the one responsible for you um, being picked in that team or, or, or certainly having a big influence over it would have been a huge thing for Sids. Um, he always had a great relationship with Ricky um, and uh, I think a lot of that came to the fact that, you know, he showed so much faith in him early doors. Um, he was a really interesting character early on. Sids, he was obviously, um, you know, he was pretty rough and tough from over there in Morwell. Um, it was good that you brought up the wood chopping question because I know how frustrated he used to get with people asking that question all the time. They'd say the wood chopper's here and he'd, he'd explain pretty regularly that he might have done it once or twice at a couple of country shows and it was actually his dad that was um, that was more the wood chopper. But uh, look, again, a, a, just a soul of the earth bloke and um, and a, you know, for him to make his debut over there and to get Tendulkar would have been, I have no doubt, a, a special moment for him. And while you weren't on that tour to India, can you tell us a little bit about the overseas tours, especially India and England, which I suppose is where the most prominent series overseas are? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, look, they're both very different. Obviously, I, you know, starting with India, though, um, everything, again, that you hear about, being in India with a, an international sporting team is exactly true. So you can't um, you can't walk out of a hotel, even as a member of the support staff, um, because there's there's literally thousands of Indians waiting out the front, um, waiting for anyone to come out uh, and and to start harassing them uh, for autographs and photos and or, or clothing or hats or you know whatever it might be that you might be able to give them. So um, they are that passionate about about cricket that it's um that it's completely unbelievable over there uh, and it takes a lot of adjusting to um uh and again probably from my perspective being involved in the media that the levels of media that cover the game over there and even uh just a simple training session um you know i suppose to put it in perspective if you have a standard training session for a, a standard series in australia you might have two or three TV cameras there and maybe half a dozen journalists, um, you know, half a dozen, a dozen journalists that turn up to cover that session. To do the same thing or a comparable thing in India, you'd be looking at 40 or 50 TV cameras and probably a couple of hundred journalists turning up to every one of those events. So um, certainly difficult to manage, um, difficult because there's so many of them that they're obviously all looking for an exclusive um, uh, I remember one guy in particular, uh, his name was Lakendra Pratap Sahi and he was from the Indian Times and he would sit in all the press conferences uh, that we do before a test match with the captain um, and as soon as Ricky would finish, he would walk from his front row and he'd, he'd walk past Ricky as we were walking out and go to ask him a question and he'd, he'd say, how are you today, Ricky, for example, and Ricky would say, I'm fine, thanks. And then in his article that would run the next day, he would say, Mr. Ponting speaking exclusively to the Indian Times. So that was his way of getting an exclusive with the captain. He'd do it every day. Um, so, you know, just an amazing place, amazing food, amazing culture. Um, and I suppose one of the things that really hits you about India is uh, just the, you know, the divide between the rich and the poor was something 
that hits you really hard. You can you can drive past a seven star hotel in Bangalore, the place where we were staying, and within a kilometre, you're looking at um, you know you're looking at the slums. So um, an incredible place from a whole you know for a whole variety of reasons. Some wonderful memories from there. Um, you know some in, in particular, I suppose some great one day series over there that we're able to win in my time. Um, but yeah, one of the most uh, challenging places, not just for players, but certainly for support staff. Um, and talking of England, well, that was a different kettle of fish again. So very traditional, obviously. Um, for an Ashes series, our high level of interest in the place, but um, just a wonderful tour. And I suppose the reason it was so wonderful is because you'd be over there for such a period of time. Um, you know, when I first went to England, I think we were there for nearly four months. Um, and it was it was incredible to spend that amount of time with the playing group in such a wonderful country in the summertime. So it wasn't cold and dark. Um, and, you know, to have the luxury that was afforded to us of staying in fantastic hotels across the countryside, um, you know, it almost gives you a, a, a you know, an unfair, um, an unfair perspective of what it's like to go on holidays to the UK, but certainly one I'd like to remember. And um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, I'm going to be able to live up to that when the family want to go over and, in a few years, but um, yeah, no, it was a great spot and uh, I, I can't wait to go back there one day and catch up with some of the people I was involved with through work. Uh, not long after that, give me a tap on the shoulder and goes, um, you ready to go? And then that's when it really sunk in. I was like, oh, and then I got nervous. Um, <laughs> yeah, sort of worried a little bit about how it'd go. It's India, conditions that I wasn't really, weren't um, foreign uh, to me, so. Um, yeah, it was a, a, a very strange experience, but straight away on the phone back home to the parents um, to try and get them on a plane. Cricket Australia were great, helped, helped sort all that out and get them over as quick as we could. And um, yeah, try and sleep um, before the game, which there wasn't a lot of sleep, um, which probably didn't help the preparation. But yeah, um, Tanduka first wicket was pretty amazing. It took a while to get it. I think it was about the 80th over um, by the time I got it. But um, yeah, just uh, just amazing experience. Just being out there, open the bowling with Brett Lee. Um, yeah, just yeah, sort of. When I look back, it, yeah, it does bring a big, big smile to my face because it's amazing times. Those sort of early, early um, experiences, and um, yeah, to be able to get him out, say Satchin was your first Test wicket, and, um, a pretty, pretty amazing feeling. Well, Wombi, that's all we've got for you. It's uh, been an honour to have you on as the, and to be able to call you the first two-time Chewy on your boot podcast guest thank you very much for everything you've done for us and being such a big part of our journey and yeah it's been great to chat again no that's fine boys i think the important thing to remember is like mike hussey says good things happen to good people so um i think you boys have done a wonderful job and i i, I think um the fact that you've got an interest in this industry is is brilliant and anything i can do to help more than happy to do um and I know from speaking to these people after they've spoken to you, they've been extremely impressed in the way that you've handled yourselves. So that's a, um, you know, that's a, a real positive for you and keep going with it. And uh, yeah, like I say, if there's anything that, that I or anyone else um, that I might be able to help you get in touch with can do to help, just let us know. Thank you we very much. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Wombie. And hopefully not as long before the uh, third time you come on the show. <laughs> yeah, let's do that just to annoy Heater, I reckon that'd be great. <laughs> yep. Okay, thank you.
And just an additional segment on the podcast. We're going back to our roots. Our first ever guest. He's returned for the second time. James Jimmy Fear. How you going, mate? Great to I'm have good. you back on. I'm, yeah, I'm good. It's an honour to be back on uh, podcast second time. First returning guest. So well, we'd love to say you have- are, but Lockie oh. Patterson, who who will also feature in this episode, he's just bet you to it, unfortunately. I have about oh. four hours. But as we said with him, if it makes you feel any better, you're on for the second time before Heath Schmidt's on for the first time. So, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, obviously, um, since, you know, you were our first guest, you're a very big part of our journey. And can you just maybe give the listeners a bit of an insight into your experiences on the Chewy On Your Boot podcast the first time? So I think last time I came on, we just, Discussed the AFL and made some predictions for the Ashes, I believe. I think I got most of those right. Well, Benny actually yeah. got it right, to be fair. Yeah. Cassie Cummins, top wicket taker. I can't remember who I said for that. Probably Root, but that was wrong. Gee, it's a long time. Not a bad, it's not a bad memory from you. That's over a year ago. That's pretty good. Yeah, the wins are slightly off, but... Yeah. Obviously, a yeah. very a proud moment of his, if he's remembering that much. <laughs> But oh, I just thought I had to mention it. Yeah. What Have you been your... on any podcast since? Uh, no, I haven't been on any podcast. Still the still the only podcast <laughs> feature from me. I think that speaks volumes of our, <laughs> of our podcast. Doesn't it? <laughs> what were your first impressions? And comparing that to now? Uh, first impressions, I thought, like the first few episodes, oh, it's good for them. Like it's going to help them further along in what you want to do in the future. But now you've got like big guests on. This could be like it could be hopefully in the future something bigger than what you were expecting. And I think a lot of that's got has to go down to Wombat as well. Yeah. He's got your last those guests. Yeah, yeah. Big part of the show as well. He's, no, he's uh, a great man. We really appreciate his help. He doesn't like to, uh, I suppose, accept his help for us but we definitely know how much he's done for us and can't thank him enough yeah and it's just progressed a lot since i was on yeah a year ago we're still uh we're still waiting for our big break but uh we're hoping it'll come soon well this yeah, could be it. keep grinding nah. <laughs> i don't think so if you keep grinding it will eventually come yeah you just i mean we work. could we could break into the UK um, podcasting world after this episode, so it could go gangbusters <laughs> after UK. that. Uh, a couple of mates of mine tried it and they failed after two episodes. They gave up. Oh, Didn't really? Hate for them. Yeah. How, yes. how long ago was they that could, though? A month or two ago. Oh god. They tried it in lock. They tried it in lockdown, and it, yeah. it didn't go much further. We might not air this so you, part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is no. a bit of bit of cricket on in England so have you been paying much attention to that to that I'm sure you have well yeah I've been paying attention to it I've been working for a fair bit so I haven't been able to watch as much as I'd like but it's been fairly good cricket from on the most part I mean the second test against Pakistan was a bit of a disappointment with all the rain uh, but other than that there's been some very good cricket I think the first the first West Indies test was a great test to watch and the, and the second as well. And um, 
Great result as well. Yeah, great results for England. And hopefully the test that's going on at the moment will also be a first win for England in 10 years over Pakistan. Hey, yeah, right, 10 years. Great. Yeah, we haven't won for 10 years against them. Not in a series anyway. So hopefully we can do that. This will be aired, but like Zach Crawley batting really well on day one. So Yeah, well, that's what I was going to mention. First test, ton. Or oh, big ton as well. Yeah. yeah. Over 171. It's Hopefully he can out. go on to 200. Yeah, knocked out as well. Butler's found his form again. Good on him. Butler, one, of, on one him. of your 500 wicket keepers. <laughs> yeah, folks, Butler, Bairstow, maybe not. Because but... Crawley came in first as an opener, didn't, didn't he? But then Burns came back in after injury. So. Yeah, after he broke his foot playing football or something like that. Yeah. So he came back in. He came in, lost his place in the side and... His, Made most of his opportunity while Stokes is away in New Zealand on family business. And obviously, when you're over in Australia here, mate, you developed a big passion for the Tigers and the AFL as a whole, really. So, been a very different season here, but have you been following it? Uh, I've been following it. I haven't been able to watch as much as I like because of the timings, but yeah, I watched the highlights of pretty much every game. And there has been... Like in the shorts and courses, there has been some very good footy played, some also very bad footy played. But <laughs> yeah, are you still on the tags, mate? Yeah, I'm still on the tags. Even they're not going as well as they should be, but it just it could be improved. It can always be improved. We're on in about we're on yeah. in about half an hour, so. Oh, it depends if Mum makes me do some stuff around yeah. the house. If I watch it or not. Yeah. Did you uh did you see yeah. Jack Jack Noons last week? What were your thoughts on that? Oh great kick. Under so much pressure and right footer from that that side of the boundary. It's a difficult kick to make. Can't afford to hook it even slightest. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was pretty amazing. Probably could... from yeah. Goal of the year I reckon, just in terms of the pressure he was under and all that the kind situation. of situation. Yeah. I reckon yeah. you'd be capable of something similar down at uh, Penshurst, Jimmy. <laughs> oh, hitting the Penshurst oval from 40 out? Maybe not. <laughs> not under the pressure. <laughs> oh, and on the boundary. Wouldn't be a bad kid. Yeah, I'd, pro- I'd probably hit it out on the floor under that pressure. <laughs> the outside of my boot. Are you, Are you playing any cricket yourself at the moment? Uh, at the moment, no. I haven't really found the time. Maybe next year, but it's been a bit difficult because we, I didn't have a club when I came back. I haven't played for a club in a while. So by the time I got back, season started, there wasn't much chance of playing any cricket. A bit disappointing, but next year, hopefully next year. Still still recovering from your D-grade 90 or that day? <laughs> I'm going to live off the glory. No one knows it was in the bottom grade of cricket over here over in Australia, but... I still Ooh. say my top score was 96 in Australia, not that. And everyone goes, yeah, that's great. <laughs> no one knows it was D-grade. <laughs> well, for all they know, D-grade could be out of... It could go to Z for all they know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just say it was a top innings in Australia. No one knows it was on an Astro wicket. <laughs> Surely you build it up a bit. Yeah, I was, I was playing my first A-grade game. 
Oh, that's cool. I only got I. I always say I only got to play one A grade game, and I had to go off sick. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we don't say the circumstances of that. Uh, uh, then Lato feeling very well. Lato filled filled in, didn't he? Yeah, he wasn't too impressed though. <laughs> <laughs> Fifty over standing in the field. <laughs> I'm not sure who was more mobile, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely lethal on that day. <laughs> you were an absolute liability at mid off. I think it was once it went about a meter past you, you couldn't even stand up. Well, I think I don't think the field placement helped me being the only fielder on the offside in front of square. Yeah. And A grade, all you do is drive the ball. It didn't really help me having to do all that running to the boundary and back. Yeah. In no, the heat. It was a it was a very funny day, but You'll always remember your A-grade debut, Jimmy, so it's one for you to remember. Yep. Hopefully it won't be the last one, but it is the debut and it will always go down in college folklore. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. I'm sure you'll play many games in the future. Um, Jim, that's about all we've got for you, mate. A brief but important chat. We thank you for your time. You're obviously very important in our journey as podcasters as you're our first guest and being overseas is it's modern technology. It's great the things we can do over Zoom, obviously. So thanks for joining us, mate, and good luck with the rest of your future. Yeah, no worries. Good luck with uh, the podcast in future. Maybe another fifty episodes. I'll be back on. Who knows? I hope so. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be fantastic. Very good. Thanks for that, Jimmy. No worries, Benny.